Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. In 1991, John Durneal started playing acoustic songs under the moniker The Mountain Goats. In the early years, he played with different musicians, sometimes solo, making interesting lo-fi recordings that developed a loyal cult fan base. Nearly a decade later, The Mountain Goats opted for a more traditional band approach and higher quality recordings, and their status in the indie world slowly rose as more people learned that John is one of our greatest living songwriters. He communicates emotional truths with clever wordplay and hyper-specific scenes, using his songs to create visceral stories with characters that you can visualize in your mind and that you often feel like you know on some level. He also takes an interest in sometimes offbeat topics like pro wrestling, early 80s goth, and yes, ska, when the San Francisco ska band Sad Snack turned the Mountain Goat's classic song No Children into Ska. John got so hyped on it, he invited them to be their secret opener at their recent San Francisco show, and we brought him on this show and found out that he has a lot to say about ska. What was your introduction to the Mountain Goats? I think that the first time, I remember hearing about them, and then I heard the um, the boombox stuff. I didn't really connect with it, but um, then someone showed me Tallahassee, and I was I fell in love with that record. Yeah, I had been uh, put onto it by Jamie from Shushu when we lived together. Uh, they gave me one of the CDs that was the boombox stuff, and it didn't resonate with me, with me at the time. But um, since then, you know, the stuff that's recorded a little bit nicer, uh, I've definitely enjoyed it. And I, I do like that old boombox stuff now that I've been familiar enough with his songwriting style. But um, it just took a little bit of like working through like, you know, Tallahassee and some of the records that came out then to kind of get it. But I, since then, yeah, I really, really like pretty much most of his records, you know, that he's put out and. Or I'm, I should say they, because um, Mountain Goats are a band, right? Which we talk about a little bit. Um, but Mountain Goats, I, I feel like in the last couple of years they've put out what, like four records? Like wow, yeah, they're still a very prolific band and uh, good quality. Uh, sometimes they'll pick themes and like make sort of concept albums, however you want to look at it, and and pull it off really well. Mm-hmm. So I was really excited to talk to him, like. I would have been excited to talk to him about mountain goats, you know, but the fact that we got to talk to him about ska was even better. Mountain goats and ska. Maybe the next album will be, you know, a, a themed album about a, you know, struggling ska band. Yeah. Won't be ska music, but it'll be about a ska band. It'll be about a ska band. That seems like what would be in the wheelhouse for mountain goats to do. Definitely. All right, go.
So for listeners who weren't here for the first, like I'm, I just got home from tour and I, I don't remember, I don't know who I'm talking to. Like they, they call up, <laughs> who are you? Right. Uh, Cause I just got in last night, but while I was making dinner tonight for the kids, uh, I needed some music and it's been a very, very intense re-entry from tour to home life. And I was like, you know what I want to hear? What was the song I wanted to hear? I wanted to hear one step beyond. Right. Uh, yes. But I, but I wound up on the Apple music ska essentials right now. If you listen to heavy metal and you go to the metal essentials, you're probably going to start, you know, bickering. Okay, well, those are fine, but there's a lot of other stuff that's very essential that's not on your list. I thought this was actually a very good playlist. It had Prince Buster in there. Mm-hmm. It had uh, like a bunch of really, uh, really good stuff. Um, it was, it was, it was perfect dinner listening. It was perfect. <laughs> it was obviously all first wave. It was, it was all uh, not, uh, not the Scar revival that uh, that would imagine you spend more time on. Yes. We embrace all of it, but yeah. We love the early stuff too, of course. Oh, good. So, I mean, what I, one thing I love about it is that that's all just people recording live in a room. None of those guys had multi-tracks. Like, oh, yeah. That's all in real time. But we know this, that like the greatest musicians in the world are reggae musicians and country and Western musicians from the 70s, 60s and 70s, right? That's like, those are the, that's the, the cream. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can hear a serious jump forward in fidelity from like, um once they get into the 70s into the more roots reggae era so yeah the ska rock steady and the early reggae stuff is like and the mento right? yeah well the mento is even even older we're talking 50s yeah. and you know yeah but, that stuff it all sounds it sounds very much like somebody one person has the machine and he he's going to hit record on that but uh but yeah it's so interesting because jamaica becomes the place where like the entirety of dance culture radiates out of dub remixes right it's like all the yeah the stuff hubby and and Lee Scratch Perry and Scientist and all those guys were doing had such global implications. It, 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 I think about it all the time. Yeah, hip hop, electronic music, yeah, remixes. It all kind of stems from that. Yeah, just, just, just really, I mean, you know, the way that we think about recording stuff, the way that engineers think about their jobs, it's like dictated by these guys going, let's make some records for these local dances. Oh, Lee Scratch Perry um, is... I mean, I, you know, people, people say he's a genius, but yeah. he doesn't get the credit for the extent of a genius that he is and his impact. You can't even measure it. I, I, he's every time he's sort of like Tolstoy or whoever that every time you go back to your Lee Scratch Perry records, you go, mm-hmm. wow, this is like even better than I thought it was. Like and every <laughs> time you go back to, to the roast fish and cornbread or whatever you go, whoa. There's stuff in here I had never noticed before. Maybe I wasn't old enough for it or whatever. It's like every time you go back to and his Marley productions, his, uh, uh, you know, he did, um, uh, uh, what's the, uh, Chase the Devil, Max Romeo, right? Yeah. Uh, he did a lot of Max Romeo stuff and that stuff gets deeper every time you listen to it. Yeah. yeah he was an absolute genius. I was lucky to see him once here in Durham before he died. Oh, nice. How was that show? Like, what do you remember from it? It was amazing. He had these pickup bands. Well, I mean, he was, you know... <laughs> He was like an old man who, uh, you know, lived very much in his own world, um, but he was incredible. I mean, he's like, because the thing is, as you might imagine, he was smoking just a gigantic spliff the entire time. <laughs> That's not allowed. You know, this is like, it's not legal here in North Carolina. And the vibe you get is like, he sort of carries his own shield of unbustability. You know, it's like, who's going to say to the 79-year-old guy wearing the disco balls around his neck, you can't smoke weed in here. <laughs> but he was incredible. His band was great. And and the, the the songs did that thing. A lot of his stuff does where you, in the first minute or so, you might go, oh, well, 
there's nothing really special it's just a groove you know and as the groove deepens i think there's a lot of george clinton stuff that's like this you know as the groove deepens you go oh i was selling this groove short this is there's really something in there and he just sort of leads the band you know in the live setting because he's not actually doing any knob twiddling or anything but he's really guiding the energy in a pretty remarkable way have you, have you ever heard of the um new york reggae you know, they have a little bit of rock steady and ska but it's mostly like a reggae band from new york in like the late 70s um called terrorists i don't know them no lee perry happened to catch them and he like he anointed them as like the next thing and he like worked with them for a while. Roland Alfonso worked with them for a while. Oh, wow. It's uh, they do some really good grooves, but it's like kind of almost like really good grooves, but with like David Burns singing. The thing is, it was it's there's a lot of good music that came out of of white people noticing that reggae was amazing in the in the late 70s. You know, I mean for a lot of weird combos, you know. I mean, yeah. Adrian Sherwood obviously goes a bunch of really cool places with it. And uh and Prince Farai, I feel like his last band, The Sons of Arca, I feel like that was a a, a European white reggae band. I'm not 100% sure, but that Prince Farai is like my favorite of them all. So obviously you like um, Jamaican ska, old stuff. Uh, what's your favorite? Do you have a favorite or does it just change? Um, I mean, I, Prince Buster, every time I, I delve it, I, I must say reggae is something I know a lot about. Mm -hmm. Jamaican ska is something I know a little about, right? Um, uh I'm trying to think, I mean, the heptones, I feel like start in the ska uh, realm. Uh, by the time they're making the records that to me are some of the greatest records ever made, they are not a ska band, right? The leaders of black country, uh, uh, you know, the Mighty Diamonds, I feel like also started as ska. I mean, the thing is a lot of the vocal combos, I think, started as ska acts and as ska sort of phased out in favor of what we now would call roots, everybody just moved along, right? Um, Prince Buster, though, he made a fair bit of ska, and his stuff is incredible. He's mm -hmm. really, like, the, the energy on this record is amazing. I mean, the other thing is, like, you know, so that's Jamaican ska, but, I, you know, I, the selector stuff, a lot of the English ska from the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, those are incredible records. I mean, if pressed, my favorite ska act of all time would probably be early specials, because the specials, and that's, those are... Ghost Town, I mean, Ghost Town's a reggae record, not a ska record, but, but, but I, I would argue that the specials are essentially a ska band. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and they are absolutely one of the most amazing bands of all time, to my, to my taste. You know? Yeah. What the specials did and the selector, I, I like all the two-tone acts, but those two acts in particular were the, the mission of, of finding a middle ground between ska and punk rock. Yeah. I feel like those bands pulled it off. Like, well, and being vocal covering songs like message to you rudy right you know yeah. uh being really vocal about racism in the scene in a time when nobody wanted to hear it you know it was like there was there was a small group of people willing to step out in largely in english uh circles english post-punk or punk era circles to go hey this is a value worth standing up for right and those guys were almost all on the ska side of the fence. The punks didn't talk a lot about it at that time in, mm. in, uh, in, in the UK or in the US, really. Um, you know, the punks talked about injustice and so forth. And you can argue that this lumped in injustice. But, but it was guys like the specials going, no, this specifically is the problem. And, and living their values by making sure they were presenting, you know, a, a, a large band that looked more like the population of London. You know, uh, pretty important, I think. Yeah, I mean, it was really bad at that time with the with the rise of National Front and uh, the message of uh, kicking immigrants out of the country. 
when police violence is something that was none of the other punks addressed it. Lynn Quezzy Johnson obviously addresses it in his some of the greatest records ever made, right? Um, oh, yeah, you know, brilliant. And just and his dubs, his dubs are the most amazing. But but I think the ska bands of of London were like in the way they lived, and also, but like there was a famous button that ska kids wore by high school that said "fuck art, let's dance," right? And uh, and that's the beautiful thing about the ska bands is they make sure to be conveying their message in a way that it might get picked up, right? Because uh, that's important, right? If like if you are perceived as a tiresome blowhard, then you can't sell your message <laughs> to anybody, right? And uh, and then your message is worthless, no matter how righteous it is, right? It doesn't matter. It's like you you can go to your grave with your righteousness. But the specials, if you lock into what they're doing, you are unlikely to emerge from that without your politics having been radicalized a tiny bit, right? And that's really the most you can expect. And so so yeah, I, I, that that stuff is pretty special to me. It's pretty special, I say. <laughs> when and where did you go to high school speaking of i went to claremont high school so this is a the thing is and i will say i did nothing but clown on ska for four years right? <laughs> even as i was going to ska shows i would be there skanking away and then making fun of them between songs because uh, it was like because the thing is is like it was there was so much anglophilia tied up in it and i do not i i do not engage anglophilia i don't think it's good you know and anglophilia in, in california in the post-punk scene punk scene was endemic right it was just like you know every golden voice flyer would say from england to sell tickets because that's how you can get people to show up right and um and i had a big attitude problem about that i was like you know what we have a lot of good bands who are from here and we don't need to be pretending that like somehow england is better than us i had a lot of west coast bitterness about this um <laughs> but uh but at my high school you guys, you're young, I assume, right? We both graduated high school, and I graduated in 93, and Adam, like, a couple years younger than me. Yeah, 95. Only a little younger than me, but, uh, yeah, yeah. but, but still, it will probably shock you to know that at my high school, if you showed up, and this is not a ska band, but ska adjacent enough that you'll, you'll, that'll give you pause. The day after it was announced that the, that the jam had broken up, you could see a lot of black armbands at my high school <laughs> wow. wearing parkas with black armbands whose lives were absolutely turned upside down. The jam has broken up. Now, I don't, I don't guess there's another high school in the U S where this was true, you know, but there were a lot of his high school at 900, some people and, and ska was a big part of it. There was a guy named Elko who was from Holland, who, uh, who had been up on all that stuff and, and wore a parka with a selector patch and, uh, like ska kids were a real thing at my high school in 81, 82, 83. Um, and we were, we were tuned into it and we argued about the value of that music. I was in the artsy crowd, sort of straddling the artsy junkie crowd. Right. And so we didn't really understand ska. Uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't get it, but at the same time, like I say, you'd go to the theater cast parties or the dances and those would be the songs that would put you on the floor. You couldn't deny it. Right. Yeah. But yes. Yeah, so that's the environment is like, I became aware of it probably in 81. I had a record, it was a double album that had uh, a bunch of live cuts on it. It had like a band called Scoffish, you know them? Scoffish, that doesn't um, ring a bell. And it had some live Peter Gabriel and some Toy Wilcox and uh, and a bunch of stuff. And all that stuff was kind of, everybody was fairly uh, ska curious at the time. You know, mm -hmm. it was like, it was, I think, and the thing is, if you take all the scene questions out of it, what's interesting about ska is that it brings cut time to the table, right? It says, how can we, let's do things in a way that, that steps, right? Um, and uh, and it, it really privileges musicians playing together, right? Uh, which is, uh, which sounds so simple that people don't stop to think about it, right? But 
but ska bands are sort of legendary for you got to have your horn section everybody's everybody's in everybody's you know everybody's syncopated with with the bass and the guitar which is playing only on the upswing right and uh and all this stuff from a musical standpoint is really interesting because it means that you have these musicians who have to be able to stop on a dime who've chosen to make this kind of music right uh and if you are a musician that sort of stuff then makes you think the same way that when you're younger, you tend to be dismissive of country and Western, right? Mm-hmm. And then at some point, right, you listen to a Merle Haggard record and, and, and the guy takes the solo and you go, oh my God, that's like, is, that guy's as good as Glenn Tipton. That's an in- incredible guitarist, you know? He's playing Oki from Muskogee or whatever, but, the, but this is great music, you know? And, and the same is true in a lot of these ska bands. It's like, these are the badasses, right? And uh, I think that's one of the interesting things about it. Yeah, if you're, if you're in a band that has a horn section and you're playing a something that's a groove meant to dance to um you have to be a good musician otherwise it just doesn't work yeah no you have to bring a lot like it's no accident the ska band that played with uh that played with us um earlier in the tour uh in san francisco you know these are band kids these are these are people who are in their high school band deciding to play ska and that's because they're musicians and they notice that something interesting about it Sky is also kind of inherently funny right? it's like, sure. it's like you know, yeah. because it's kind of goofy and especially once it gets to england you know then there's there's a there's a there's a goofiness that those guys bring that i think is valuable you know when i was in high school i wanted serious music so these guys are just playing around right but 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 again like that's where ghost town comes along and says what are your values this is one of the greatest records ever made you know and so uh but uh but yeah. Um, what Scotlands did you see while you were in high school? Were any of them uh, local or regional? No, they were local. You wouldn't have heard of them. There was a band called the Tickets. Uh, well, so the Tickets. I was at the show where the Tickets at midnight became the Targets. Do you know the Targets? No, I don't know the Targets. <laughs> Love that name change, though. There was a band called Undercover, and I and and they 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 performed with their lead singer's name, which I can't remember. It was like you know James Moore's Undercover or uh-huh. something. Uh, that was an LA band who played at a very tiny club that my stepfather took me into. It was like, there was not a lot of people there. It was one of those clubs that Billy Vera and the beaters used to play at. Those guys played like seven nights a week. Right. Um, do you know, Billy, Billy, uh, Billy Vera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So he, the way the beaters made their rep is like, they just literally played six or seven nights a week forever. Right. They were the house band everywhere. And, uh, so I went to God undercover was the name of the act but it was like it was some guy's name with a with a with a possessive apostrophe after it like james moore's undercover right but they had a song called skanking in the trailer park that i remember very well nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good tune um I, I didn't i don't think i saw anybody who you would know uh i uh, uh you know so you didn't see like uh untouchables or any of like oh i did see the untouchables at least once uh possibly i think the untouchables were actually on that the that targets tickets bill um but i was there to see the targets because so, it was in pomona <laughs> so the untouchables yeah uh they were i mean they were everywhere and uh what was the uh, the big tune that they uh free yourself right free yourself which is kind of a more of a northern soul type i was gonna say it's a northern soul tune right uh yeah 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 but, but that's the thing if you guys could be teleported to pomona college in 1982 you would be stunned by the prevalence of Scott. I had a friend who like did the Vesper rally to, to, to Newhall, right? It was like, it was a whole, it was, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, quadrophenia out there for a couple of years. That's wild. 
I looked it up really quick. Skanking in the trailer park is by Billy Sheets and the Undercoverman. Billy Sheets Undercover, right? That, that's who I saw. Uh, so well done. Well, <laughs> <laughs> feeling feeling my circuits go. Yes, you had the undercover part. Well done, old man. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. There was a band in Santa Cruz. I think they started in the like mid to late '80s. They were called Undercover, then S K A, like S period k period a period so i wonder if it was billy sheets the thing is like santa cruz is not far from southern california and uh and a lot of socal wind up up there and it wouldn't surprise me if they traveled billy sheets like was around he was like that was somebody whose name was on several bills and they were tight they were really good um uh oh you know they had another song called wow this is like so it's said that you know it's good for your brain like I have, a, I have a thing against nostalgia. Like I, I don't really listen to much music from when I was young, but I've read articles recently that suggest that it's good to engage that stuff because there's circuits in your brain that stay healthy and active if you do keep waking them up and go, remember this song from when you were 12? You know, remember this song. It's apparently very good for your brain, right? Uh, so so when, you, when, you, when you look up Billy Sheets, I go, oh yeah, he had another song called uh, Real Estate. <laughs> and, it, and the chorus was real estate jack it up jack it up jack it up <laughs> we'll be right back after this hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how do people get qualified we want to hear your top artists to play on the bonnaroo 2024 lineup Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So, yeah, um, yeah you, you mentioned the sad snack that uh, opened for you. Oh, dude, these guys were so great. Let's We got to tell everybody the full story of Ska No Children because this is a, yes. an epic journey that leads to uh, them on stage. Yeah. So, so first I know, okay, they post this video and they tag you and you see it. Is that how it starts for you? I feel like they asked permission first. Oh, did they? Which is quite amazing that, that, that kids do is like, you know, you don't have, as far as I know, you don't actually have to have any permission to cover a song. You just have to pay the mechanical when somebody asks you, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's not my end at all is the thing. It's like, sure. it's not asking the, asking the guy because he's on Twitter a lot. All I can do is to legal people. I don't know. It's fine with me, whatever, you know, but that's why I always tell people is like, you can do whatever you like and you have my blessing and I cannot speak to any legal consequences of it because that's not my area, right? And it's never going to be my area. It's like, I got my plate full, but, uh, but I can direct you to the people to talk to if you want to, but they are lawyers, right? So, so it's like, and, then, and the thing is, if you're a young band, you're like, well, I don't want to talk to a lawyer. I want to ask the guy who wrote it, but I'm not, especially when you're me, you know, if you're, if you're like, the, the sort of uh, the, the figurehead of a band, you know, uh, there's this there's this notion that you exert a much higher level of control than you actually do over everything that goes on in your world, right? Right. I have control over the lyrics and over the music and over what I do. Everything else is kind of out of my hands. It's like, although the thing is, I do exert more control than most people in my chair do, right? Like I, I shoot down a lot of cover art ideas. I get asked to do, uh, you know, short videos. Like, well, no, I don't want to. I, I'm not. I'm not going to do special stuff for TikTok or whatever, you know, uh, I have sort of, you know, I have a sort of a eclectic set of standards about what I will and won't do, but I am not actually the one guy in the top chair. It's, it's collective sort of, you know, and so and there's a bunch of people with a bunch of jobs, but they asked me, and I said, look, 
I'm not in a position to clear this for you, but I can tell you nobody's going to come after you about it, you know, because I won't allow that to happen. I, I, I can say if my manager notices and say, hey, these guys cover your song. Yeah, that's no, fine. They don't bother them. Right. But but ASCAP, I can't stop ASCAP from bothering somebody. Right. If ASCAP comes, that's that's out of my hands. And so um, but uh, but I doubt that that will happen. ASCAP does other stuff. So I was excited about it uh, precisely because I think, well, for one thing, I'm sure you are familiar with the Propagandi song about ska. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I loved Propagandi in the 90s and I didn't hate that song yet. You know, Propagandi <laughs> no longer stands by that song either because Chris has grown as a person. But there was a time of real factionalism, you know, and when it really did seem like a lot of ska bands would reach for that brass ring, want to get that major legal contract, right? And everybody who was in the scene that was against major labels was like, you guys are about money, you know, uh, and this, you know, we, uh, and we can, we can, we track this exactly to no doubt. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, but, uh, but I'm a hundred percent certain that Chris Hanna would say, no, no, look, I didn't really know anything about Scott. That was just where I stood as a young punk, you know, I actually, um, if you, if you, if I want to interject, that song's really complicated because when he wrote that song in like the late eighties, yeah. it was actually written to, uh, annoy the Nazi skinheads that were like coming to their shows in their hometown in Canada. It was like, it, it was a fuck you. Uh, you're not welcome here song. Wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> and then they released it like in 93 on fat records on their first or whatever record that was. Well, I think, I think it was like on, wasn't it on a, was it on how to clean everything or was it? Yeah. It was on how to clean everything. Uh, Scott was not a mainstream genre at that point. So it wouldn't have made sense that it was like a, a commentary on, uh ska but when ska did become like a thing yeah then it becomes the commentary then it's like people sort of like took that song and i think i think that's why chris and them kind of backed off it's like that's not really it's not really what we were talking about and i understand it's like hard to give the whole full story i would guess that when they made that song they hadn't stopped to think about what ska had meant in london in 1980 sure Mm-hmm. Those yeah. are those are questions that you have to be a little grown up to think about. You know, you have to go. Oh, okay, well, if a, if a, if a you know if a multiracial crew of dudes, you know, is making a record and they choose to make a ska record in London in eighty, what's that mean? You know, just to make the record, regardless of the content of the record. You know, uh, if they choose to make in this style, what does that say? And I think really part of the punk assumption, which I think is worth interrogating is that the only thing you're really listening to is the lyrics and the music, right? But context is hugely important, right? Who's making it? Where are they making it? When are they making it? What are the circumstances around when they're making it? These are all massively important questions uh, that inform how we take a piece of music, right? And so, like I say, when you listen to Selector, there's the specials, and you consider the scene that they're making that in and who their audience is likely to be, right? Then that has to inform your listening to these records but if you're younger and you haven't really had the time to, to be asked these questions, it won't inform your listening. You'll just hear the record and you'll hear, what do you mean stop your messing around? What kind of first line is that? <laughs> it's like, well, it's actually a cover, you know, and, and it's about violence in the scene, which affects everybody, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, that, I mean, that's the thing is like, as with a lot of things your first immature look at it is going to be reactionary and punk is inherently reactionary. I think, you know, punk. It is. I think so. Yeah. Rose is not being reactionary when it's good. Propagandi becomes a band who is by no means reactionary, but right? they're actually a very complex band, but they begin life 
as punks, right? They begin life saying, here's the stuff I see in my world that sucks, you know? And, and, and so it makes perfect sense that that would be a response to a local event, right? Yeah. By the way, I, I like, I would literally sweep the ground in front of them where they walk. <laughs> when you shared the Sad Snacks cover of uh, yeah. No Children, you yeah. had a long post, all hands on deck. Yes. <laughs> Very nice post. It was so. I, I don't remember the post. Is the thing I don't keep track of my posts. My, my post takes place in real time, so uh, yeah. So I don't. I, I usually don't remember what I said. Uh, but but I was excited, you know, because like because the thing is like ska, where it sort of sits culturally now in the small pizza slice of people who think about it at all, right? Yeah. Like it's funny, right? There's all there's something inherently funny about ska, in part because of the ska revival of the '90s, which you know. 90% of everybody hated, but the 10% that didn't hate it was a much broader section of the American public, and those bands made money, right? And then over time, stuff that at the time in the 90s, if you were into like indie rock or whatever, and you would hear Goldfinger or, or whatever, and, and, and you'd go, oh my God, I'm not trying to hear this. But then you play Tony Hawk a few years later, you go, I'm kind of digging this Goldfinger tune. I, I can't help myself. <laughs> it's good. It's really good. You may or may not know I've covered that song on piano. <laughs> and so uh, I have I have heard this is a 2016. Yeah, yeah. Cause it's the thing. So when I first heard it on Tony Hawk, I was like, oh my God, what is this ska revival stuff? Are you kidding? Right. And then you hear it 40,000 times where you're trying to beat your own high score and you go, you know, I'm actually kind of moved by these lyrics, you know. And that's one of the things about ska. I don't know the genre thoroughly enough to say that it's universal, but there is an earnestness to ska, right? Like it's one of those musics where it's almost hard on sleeve. The lyrics are almost always something kind of obvious, you know, but that, that, but that warrants being said anyway, you know, something like a guy in, in the Goldfinger tune, just talking about how it's weird and confusing to be 21, you know, how you, you have so much stuff you want to do, you don't know where to start, you know, it's incredibly moving. And your first response to that, if you're a cynical 29-year-old, oh, yeah, whatever, you're, you're thinking about your deal. You know? It's like, and, and, you know, I don't dismiss that either. We all have to go through our cynical period. But you grow a little and you go, wow, what a brave thing to say in front of the entire world that you're so confused about what to do. You know, it's like, it's a, an amazing thing to say in a song, really. Yeah. You know? uh, and, and a lot of skies like that. A lot of skies, people saying, to, to, you know, generally to other rude boys stop your messing around you need to think of your future you know it's time you straightened up you'll end up in jail well that's really it's a, it's a parental thing to say you know it's like it's like a dad thing to say but here are these young guys in jamaica going hey stop your messing around man you go to jail you don't want to go to jail jail sucks <laughs> like what an amazing thing to do with music you know it's like and as you grow you that's what you do you you, you think well my cynical stuff has its uses it's fun you know but but uh but that's the real thing. That's the sort of thing that, you know, that somebody might hear at some point and might pause to think about. And, and that's where music is miraculous. If like, if it hits one person at the right time and delivers a message of hope, you know, that's literally a miracle, you know, it's like, cause that's the message that they're not getting from elsewhere. Yeah. There's actually several uh, of those songs from that sixties Jamaican period that are, have the message of chill out because of like, yeah the the circumstance of violence and stuff happening well yeah i mean that's the thing as guns begin to, to show up in jamaica yeah the impact that the arrival of firearms in jamaica has on the scene is something that we can't really imagine we can talk about it but you have to read pretty deep in it to go like no once people start bringing pistols to dances it's a bad scene right because <laughs> mm -hmm. these dances they're not like you know they are in local boroughs within kingston you know 
And if somebody shows up with a gun and is drunk or whatever and 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 offs three people, you know, that that's a, that could be a serious loss to the scene. That could be a loss to the future of the music that they're constructing, you know, to the culture that's being built at that time. So so I think a lot of musicians at that time were were very aware in Jamaica of like how grave an issue it was for firearms to have become a thing in Jamaica. Yeah, and the sound systems too. You, you you know the sound system part of the culture, right? Oh yeah, yeah. They were competitive in a in an almost gangster way. Did you see when Tubby's sound system went up on eBay about uh, ten or twelve years ago? No. Oh my god, I wanted to buy it so bad. <laughs> <laughs> How much did it end up going for? I don't remember. It was north of ten thousand dollars, but but not what it was worth. You know, because uh, that's priceless yeah. history. You know, it's like. Uh, it was Tubby's sound system is literally the one he used at dances of which there is no, like there's almost no documentation of those dances, right? Like there's, we know when they happened, you know, but we don't know what was played, you know, and we don't have recordings of them for the most part. I think there's one or two out there, maybe more than that, a handful, but, uh, but I mean, like those were, and this is something that's also true with jungle and rave and hardcore and a lot of stuff is like, what was really happening is something that is completely undocumented. You know, it's like the records were part of it, a big part of it, but the sequence they were played in and the audience they were played for, what was going on that week in that neighborhood, these are like, that was a big part of what was going on, what was shaping the music going forward, you know, and so, uh, and that stuff is largely undocumented. So, okay, so you reach out to Satsnack and you say, okay, we're coming, we're coming to San Francisco in a few days. It was, it was like, we did it really late because I, I didn't think of it until I was on tour and it, it came up on Twitter or something. Like, hey, did everybody see the the Scott No Children? And I, you know, I get pretty manic once I start touring, and uh, and I and I forget who it could have been me, but I don't want to claim credit if it wasn't me. I forget who said we should invite him to the show. You know, uh, might have. I don't know. Uh, I said they were in San Jose. San Fran- I think they're San Francisco. Yeah, they're San Francisco. But yeah, so we hit them up, and they were super stoked. Um, and yeah, it was like. Uh, we didn't really, then, then I handed everything. I talked about having people. I was like, Brandon, my tour manager, coordinate this thing for these people. They're going to play the opening number. I could see the look on Brandon's face. Like my hands are full and I work two jobs with you guys already. <laughs> for me. <laughs> but, uh, but I have lead singer disease, which means that I can't really perceive in real time what's going on with other people. So, <laughs> so I, uh, At least you're aware of it. That's the first step, right? Yeah. We know the thing is I'm an author, so I can really accurately describe it later <laughs> afterwards. So, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I knew I was like, I'm making extra work, work for Brandon, but, but I thought it would be pretty special. And in fact, it was uh, like, it was a highlight of the tour. So there's footage of it, but what doesn't show in the footage is that the lights go down. People are expecting you guys to go on one step beyond plays over the speakers. That was, that was our choice. That was, uh, we, that was, we were like, we were talking about entrance music. Oh, we should make our entrance music something Scott. And I was like, it has to be one step beyond because I consider that one of the best. Sure. And the Madness track. I mean, the original is great. Is immensely great, also, but that Madness track, like that, locks into a moment for me. Oh, it's per- it's a, and you know, and as a, as far as like it being like a DJ track for people ready to dance. Oh yeah, if you want to set off a dance floor, that's that's the song to put on. Unparalleled, yeah. No, that's that's seriously. People run from the, their smoke break to to get on the floor <laughs> yeah. for that. Okay, so then Sad Snack has a banner that lowers. Yes. <laughs> I was backstage, right? But we knew they had. They had called Brandon about to have a banner. So let's let them have the banner. That'll be awesome. You know? And so, yeah, the banner lowered over our, we have a backdrop of the cover art from uh, Dark in here. Uh, it doesn't say the mango, it's not, but it's, it's cover art. And so their banner lowered, it says sad snack. Right? 
as you could feel the confusion of the room like you could feel it filtering to the backstage area <laughs> and so they they're on stage they go into Scano children yes and then midway through the song uh you guys get on stage and you just join them and start dancing yes i said well uh excuse me i start what <laughs> skanking skanking thank you so much uh, I, I did the proper skanking the classical skank with my right elbow up and my left elbow back and reverse and reverse and reverse uh and but the thing that was funniest about it so my coat that night is uh i have two identical coats one of them's purple and one of them's green uh they're hugo boss coats um but they're not, they don't look super flashy or anything. Um, but the green one, obviously, like that's parka color, right? That's like that's part of the attire. If you're not wearing black and white, you can also wear wear army yeah. green, right? And uh, but the other thing is, and this was a total accident. I had no, it wasn't a total accident. I had thought about it. Oh no, no, I take it back. It was intentional for their set. I have a pair that I just got before this tour. I've never had them before in my life, but I got a pair of prescription sunglasses. Right. I need I, I need corrective lenses to see well. So I have a pair of prescription sun, sunglasses for when I go to the beach or if I go running on a sunny day or whatever, so that I can see clearly and be shielded from the sun. And I was like, oh, I should wear my shades up there. And, and then I can be full on in skank mode in, in sunglasses. Right. So I did. <laughs> right. And, and it was hilarious. And the photographs show. But then we were so excited after they were done. It was so amazing. Right. And then we our set started immediately. We didn't leave the stage. They left the stage. We said, thank you. Um, they left the stage. And I forgot that I was wearing sunglasses. <laughs> Wait, for how for how long? Like the next nine songs. <laughs> <laughs> like I totally didn't realize. And I was like suddenly at one point I went, oh, my God, I'm still wearing my shades. <laughs> I mean, so then what was confusing about that is like I don't like to look at pictures of myself. But then a picture comes up on Twitter. I was like. You look pretty cool in my shades. I should do that. More. Yeah, this is this is a new thing. <laughs> <laughs> I did it for one more one more show just because of that. Yeah. So then, um, your set starts with non ska, no children. Yes, that's right. We thought that was, <laughs> we we had a, here's the thing. There's two songs that the Mountain Goats are kind of obligated to play somewhere in the set, whether it's in the encore, or the body of the set. Got to play no children. Got to play this year, right? It's like it would be unsporting not to. Those are the songs. There are people who are buying an expensive ticket specifically to see those songs, yeah. right? So I don't hold with bands who, who who say that, you know, that they don't have to play their biggest ones. If you, I mean, if we had 10 giant radio hits, then I would say, look, we can't do all the hits. We got to do other stuff. But if you have two that are significantly, like we have a third one, Up the Wolves is also very popular. Um, well, of those three, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable leaving one out, right? But it's probably not going to be No Children this year. <laughs> I think those two are a big... You know, those are those yeah. are big numbers for us. We usually do all three of them between encores and the set because I, I believe strongly in, you know, I, I am an employee of the people who have come to see us play. And, uh, uh, you know, like I shape the set in a way that I hope is pleasing to them. But I also want to make sure, you know, I, I shape it so pleasing them, but also pleases me. But by the end of the night, I want them to say I got what I wanted, you know. Um, so, so, yeah. So I was like, where are we going to do no children in that set? We should just do it right away. <laughs> Which is just so good. Yeah, that's the best move. Yeah, well, because the other move would have been to do it last. That's kind of the more artistic move, you know, is like open and close with the same song. Shriekback did that on several tours. Um, it's, it's, I think that's more pleasing to the band than it is to the audience, right? With the audience, it was like, it was just great to do No Children twice. You know? In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. 
Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I know Josh from Sad Snack, and he told me that um, before the show that you were like, you came in and you visited them in the back room, and and then you consulted with him on which skank, how you should skank during the set. Yes. So I'm curious, what were your skanking um, options that you were pondering? Well, you can have a mild skank, like a skank in place, or you can skank across the floor. You know, you can you can fully, you know, you think about, you know, your your scene making rude boy just completely in skank. I mean, skanking is like running. Sure. Right? It's like you, you you can you can cover a lot of ground. And so, I mean, I just wanted to make sure I didn't what I didn't want to do was completely upstage them because. The people in the room are there to see the mountain goats. And I know that. And a lot of people conflate the mountain goats with me. I'm the focal point. I'm the guy who writes the songs. Uh, and I'm, you know, and I have a fair amount of charisma that I have to sort of admit to. Um, so, so yeah. So, so, but the thing is like a guy like me can eat up all the oxygen. Right. And I don't want to do that. Right. I don't want to take the attention away from the people who are brave enough, who've never played a room that size at all to go ahead and say, yes, you know, to be, to be bold enough to, to say, yeah, let's do this, you know, because that takes courage. It's, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in this sort of sort of clout intensive moment, we think, what do you mean courage? It's like they get a lot from it. Man, it is really nerve wracking to step onto a big stage if you've never been on one. It's really something, you know, and especially if you're, you know, as musical as they are, like those guys are not, they're not, um, you know, they're not chasing clout. They're not trying to establish themselves as, as personalities. They're trying to establish themselves as musicians, mm-hmm. you know. And that means that their focus is on their playing, not on whether they pop on stage or whatever. And a guy like me, like I say, could come in and sort of just dominate the moment. And I didn't want to do that, you know. So, uh, so I wanted to talk to him about that. Did they get a sound check? I don't remember. They, uh, <laughs> they, they did. Josh told me they did. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, but I, I feel like they were they had a, they had a lot of trouble with traffic getting yeah. to the venue. Uh, so I think abbreviated sound check, but they did. Did you know that um, that was like their second show ever? As snap, sat snack. Dude, I was just talking about that. But the other thing is they're in good company because wasn't like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young at Woodstock. Isn't that like their first yeah, show? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, now they're all rich. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a... So sad snack can be half as rich as CSNY. There we go. <laughs> so I, I read that. Um, just, so in regards to no children. Yeah. I read that um, the song, the seed of the song started when you were driving and, and you heard, I hope you dance. Yes. And you out of hatred of the song, you started singing, I hope, I hope you die. Well, not just out of hatred of the song, but I was also, I was writing the Tallahassee album at that time, yeah. right? Which is an album, uh, and I was living in those couples, in this couple's brain. It's an album about a divorcing couple, or a couple who's on the cusp of yeah. divorce, I used to say. Uh, and so like these people were with me when I woke up and with me when I went to bed, I was trying so hard to write an album that would be good. You know, I wanted it to really do justice to this story arc that I'd been working on for four or five years, or, or six. and. Uh, and so there was like whatever I heard would sort of I would fold into that context in some way or another. And I hated that song so bad. <laughs> <laughs> when, it, when it came on, it was like when I got that idea as the chorus came out, as soon as I said, Oh, that would be funny for your dudes, right? Your 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 couple can totally like can say that to each other. That would be funny. 
so I wrote most of the lyrics on the plane and in the hotel I landed at uh, for that. I think it was the Athens. I can never remember if it was Athens or Tallahassee I was flying to. Um, I think it was Athens that I was flying to the Pabs Blue Ribbon Ball, which was a uh, a two day show put on by uh, by a, a publicity company whose name escapes me. But uh, but yeah, but it could have been to Tallahassee. I'm not sure. The what's funny is I I uh, I remember that song, but I haven't heard it in a long time. So I was listening to it today just to refresh my memory. And uh, my wife comes in my room and she's like, "What the hell are you listening to?" <laughs> This is yes however are you are you a parent no here's the thing man all that stuff that you think is so damn corny right go ahead and have you some kids then see how you feel about it right it's like it will soften you <laughs> right it will like when i hear that song now i still think it's like shameful to to pander that hard you know but i also get it that like the songwriter could say do you know how many people have told me that that song made them feel hopeful, you know, that that song made them, gave them a way of thinking about what they hope for their child. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I can't argue with that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's fair. You know, well, that's the thing. Like I was talking about earlier is like your youthful cynicism. If you're, I'm willing to say this as a, as a generality and I, I try and avoid generalities, but your useful, youthful cynicism should give way to a softer and more forgiving heart. Yeah. You know, where you look at any form of art, right and your question is how does this minister to somebody to its intended audience or the audience that finds it instead of how can i say this sucks you know <laughs> and the thing is we, we learn this from the way people were dismissive of ska including me right it's like and then later you go oh wow i wasn't thinking about the musicianship i wasn't thinking about the context you know i didn't care about having fun but other people who do care about having fun <laughs> nothing wrong with that you know but when i was like when i was a young gothy type to me, like if you if you put one nano angstrom of value on having fun, I was like, oh, you're shallow, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, well, you know, I was a dick. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, those people were right. You should enjoy your life. There's nothing wrong with enjoying skanking is fun, you know. Uh, if you're having fun, you're living life well, you know. And uh, and so so yeah, that's my that's my my more mature feeling about that song. However, when I hear it, my toes still curl up. It's like because. But I do think like there's a good version of that song. It's Forever Young by Bob Dylan, right? And even even the Rod Stewart version of that, which is sort of the very burnished version, you know, it'll bring you to tears. It's amazing, you know. And whereas I think I hope you dance is really it feels it does feel like people going, Oh my God, we're gonna make so much money on the greeting card angle. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanna ask, um, so Tallahassee, this this record comes out in two thousand two. Um Yes. The intended single was See America Right, correct? That's correct. Yeah. No Children is, as since, you know, after its release, it's been in movies, uh, it's been covered, uh, it blew up on TikTok, like I think it was a year and a half ago. Um, there's, uh, yeah. there's a now famous ska version. Um, yes. when, when did No Children sort of become like the song that you absolutely have to play? So it's funny. Um, it's a long story. Um, I'm going to, uh, Carry the computer in the next room. You'll hear some children talking momentarily. Um, so because I was such a tyrant about album sequencing in those days, like you could not tell me how to sequence my album, right? I, I, if you were the head of the label, I was going to argue with you. For the album after Tallahassee, I did let them make a correction. They, like, they told me, we will do what you want, but we think this is what's right. And, and I said, okay. If you, but, but for Tallahassee, I think everybody's hopes at the label side were pretty low. 
And, uh, and I got my way 100%. I said, this is the sequence of the record. This is, this is the way it goes. And I sequenced it mainly narratively and in terms of flow. And the other thing is I have always valued saving some of the best songs for the back half, yeah. right? Like to me, when I was a kid listening to albums, that, that ruled for me. If side two was better than side one, man, that's a band I like. And, I, and just to interject, I really like how you often close with the most or one of the most emotionally potent songs, like the sort of the accumulation of the record. And then you get the last song. Yeah. It brings it all home. Because to me, well, the thing is, like, when you do that, you're saying to the person who came with you for the whole journey, thanks. I'm glad you stuck it out. Here's, here's, here's something, you know, that's better than everything you heard before. I believe really strongly in that. Uh, in the digital age, you're out of your mind if you still do that. And I still do that. I don't <laughs> mind, but, uh, like, but everybody else will tell you, look at everybody's, if you go to any digital form that shows you the metrics, the first song has the most plays. Like, you know, look, look before anything hits. Look at the first month of anything. First song has the most, second one has the second most. By the fifth song, everything's gone over the cliff. Nobody's listening except for the hardcores, right? So the thing is, if you have a really good song, and you want somebody to hear it, you need to put it up front, right? But you couldn't tell me that in 2002. <laughs> there was no way. If you'd have told me to put the children further up, I would have put it last, <laughs> you know? And so, so I think it's like seven or eight. I'm not sure. Um, yes. But I know it's, it's, it's deep in because I thought you needed to work to get to it. I thought like it should be this moment of real release. But the other thing is, I didn't, uh, I didn't think I would be able to, I wasn't a very good guitarist at that point, you know, uh, and No Children's a pretty demanding song. It's in 6-8, um, it takes a lot of energy and, uh, and to sing and play it at the same time, you have to be a better guitarist than I was then. So we didn't play it at all on the Tallahassee tour, not once. Um, I don't think we played it live. I could be wrong, Peter might correct me. He might say, no, we tried it once or twice. And then you said we weren't gonna do it. Peter remembers the stuff that I do. But I do know that a couple tours later, we, we broke, I think, you know what, will I have you, I'm going to find out when the, the earliest uh, performance of your children was, because um, I can do that now. Um, uh, but, but the thing that happened was once we actually brought it in, um, it, uh, it, it didn't really slam super hard right away. It's like people liked it. It didn't get a great deal of attention, um, but it sort of had its cult. See, it was first, it was played twice in 2002. <laughs> that's hilarious um and it was played six times in 2004 and 2003 eight times in 2005 right um then 13 times in 2006 uh and this is like we toured a lot in those days but i can see that it really starts to get its legs under it around 2009 when it was played 32 times so by that time we're probably playing at most shows but the thing is, it was funny. It was not a hit. It didn't get radio play. The people who liked it were, for the most part, people already in the fan base, though there were always occasionally, like I remember a show in Charleston, a, a married couple who was already very drunk coming up to me. We didn't have a dressing room. And so I was at the bar playing like video poker and they came up and said, hey, we're the alpha couple. <laughs> <laughs> I did, did my thing. I said, well, then you should. Yeah, do therapy. it's not a great thing to be. <laughs> but but I know children's our song. I said, like, well, cool. It's uh, glad to hear. It. I'm glad you enjoy it. Uh, you know, but but uh, but yeah, so it really very slowly, and this confirms a lot of my indie prejudices, right? It's like it found its audience by itself. I didn't yeah. push it. You know, I wasn't playing at every show, making sure you hear my cool song. I find that humiliating. I sort of feel like, you know, a song that is really good 
right, will find its people. And actually, we have a song right now that is doing the same thing, which is Tidal Wave, which was one of my favorite ones from Getting the Knives. And it has very oh, yeah. slowly, uh, like the audience has started to notice that we're doing something that's sort of a level up for us with it, the way that No Children was kind of a level up in terms of its being a six eight and, and requiring a little more from me musically and uh, and 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 being formally kind of interesting you know uh and tidal wave has been taking on this sort of life of its own within the audience which is really exciting for me so um there's another song from the tallahassee sessions i want to talk about it's called ethiopians yes oh it mentions desmond decker right or no, it meant, well, it doesn't mention, it just says Lover's Reggae. Oh, right. No, I have a song that was never released that mentions Desmond Decker. <laughs> oh, we're going to, well, let's get to that after this. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, I think I read, oh, we, we play Lover's Reggae on accordion and banjo. That's the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on accordion and banjo when the moon is high. Yeah. And so you, you named the song after the group, Ethiopians, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Very good. Nobody has ever noticed this. So. <laughs> well, let's hear. Well, why is that? Why has nobody ever noticed it? No, no. Why? <laughs> this is the story behind you going like this is. I'm naming the song after the after the Ethiopians. Oh, the thing is, like a lot of the the, the song titles are sort of this capricious sort of semaphore in those days. It's like I'm going to say lovers reggae in it, and then I'm going to mention a band who's not a lovers reggae act, but everybody who likes lovers reggae knows who Ethiopians are, right? And. Uh, 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 Ethiopians is the Israelites, right? Isn't that right? The, is, the Ethiopians are a different band. It, the, Desmond Decker's. No, 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 no. The song, the Israelites. Oh, oh gotcha. No, that, that's Desmond Decker. Yeah, yeah. It's Desmond. Okay. I'm trying to think of what Ethiopian song was on my mind at that time. Because I'm sure that's what it was. I was like looking for a good title. I don't call my songs usually by whatever's in the chorus. And so I was thinking of acts loosely from the lover's reggae window, yeah. you know? And Ethiopians was the first one that came to mind. I thought, oh, that's a good title. <laughs> so it's like, you know, and also because it references Ethiopia, which is so central to the whole reggae uh, moment, you know, uh, to the whole reggae ethos, you know, uh, and uh, and so yeah, so so it's just a sort of a like I say, a sort of a, 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 a you know, points of connection semaphore kind of thing. Would have been sick if you'd called it Train to Ska, though. <laughs> Train to Ska. <laughs> it would have been like, oh, I can't wait to hear this song. And then it's like, that song. <laughs> it would have, I think given, given that the song wasn't released, I could have called yeah. it whatever. You know? but has the studio version of that? Is that out there or no? I heard your Day Trotter version. I don't, I have not, I haven't found the studio version. Because there is a Tony Dugan recorded studio version. We did it um, in, at, at um, uh, Dave Friedman's studio. It was called um, Tarbox up there in upstate New York. We, we, we recorded a version of it. But, uh, but yeah, it has not seen daylight along with Alpha Chum Gatherer, the other, I think there's maybe even one more song of Tallahassee that didn't get released. So you wrote a song that references Desmond Decker? Yeah, what was that one called? Um, it referenced him by his nickname. Can you tell me his nickname? I don't know his nickname. Yeah, I don't know that. One Drop Derek. Do you know what that means? Like the one drop, the drum beat. Yeah, the drum beat. Yeah, well, no, no, one drop because that's how many um, that's how many takes it, take, it, it takes him to get something oh, done. Oh, okay. Oh, nice. In those days, they were tracking to acetate, right? It's like when you're doing a dub plate, you're doing it live, right? It's like the, the, you're, you're going to play the track, the guy's going to sing, and I'm going to track you to the acetate live and whatever you sing that's what's going on there right well plenty of people are going to waste acetate with 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 flubs because then you don't it's not digital it's like you have to break that one derek uh was legendary for getting on the first time he was called one drop derek what was the, the line in the song is like we played 
one drop Derek on the kitchen stereo in the house on Ludlam Street. I, I, that's all I remember about it. <laughs> when when did you write this song? 99, 98, 99. Was it um part of a session for an album or was it just a standalone thing you wrote um so in those days there was no difference okay. between a session for an album and a standalone because i was just tracking by myself into a boombox so so i didn't ever say okay and now i'm making an album i just re recorded what i recorded and uh so tallahassee kind of began that sort of that way of thinking yeah for you yeah with tallahassee i was always writing tallahassee that's right so i want to hear about a song that you wrote uh, never released called Peepin' and Skankin'. <laughs> Where did you hear about this? You tweeted it. <laughs> so, let me see. Uh, let me see if I can remember any of the lyrics that one. Um, oh, I can totally remember because, because one of the lyrics has an extremely good reference in it. Um, uh, um, I was in a restaurant at an important meeting. They have glass tables. You can see yourself eating. You got it. Mm -hmm. Do you got that reference? Uh, that glass tables eat. That's uh, mirror in the bathroom. Thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> I was immensely proud of that. So, um, uh, how does it go from there? It was a reference to the fact that Peter kept taking pictures of people, uh, uh, like, like it was taking pictures, like, you know of stuff without you know like he'd look out the window and snap a picture he was seeing tour pictures and as you do on tour you just start making fun of people for whatever they're doing and so so uh so one of us not me uh started calling him peeper right and and, <laughs> and then so when he started peeping <laughs> that's where i came up with people thanking right so, so so i mean i i still have the tune i wrote like three verses to it I was in a restaurant in an important meeting. They have glass tables. You can see yourself eating. Right. Uh, and uh, and the, the chorus obviously goes peeping, peeping, and a skanking. Right. So that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I literally wrote a horn line to it in my in my mind. <laughs> can you remember the horn line? Oh, and peeping, da, 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 peep. It, it, it echoed the, the vocal line. So. Like it's between peeping, da, 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 peeping, and a skanking. Right. So. Nice. So now you said that you um, chose to leave it unreleased yes. because you, you because you didn't want to because it's a joke song. Well, yeah, this is the thing is like, so I'm telling you this story. There's going to be a, a guy. And when I say a guy, I mean, 100 percent a guy It is literally only <laughs> only dudes assigned male at birth who stayed that way, who do this. Right. Who like who, who go, it would be funny to yell the joke song I heard about on Twitter. Right. It's, that is dudes, right? 100% dudes do that. And, uh, and, and of course, it sucks the air out of the room. There's no real response to like, uh, no, I, uh, I'm not going to play the song that doesn't actually exist. Thank you for asking. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, you do about it. It's like, it's a very, very frat kind of thing to do. And so, so uh, but that's the thing is I learned this early on. If you write a funny song, you have to live with the funny song. People want to want to hear it. You know, they're going to yell for it. And, uh, and if your set is trying to go in a more emotional direction or whatever, the funny songs aren't going to have any place in there, but people who came to hear it are still going to want to hear it. So I mean, that's why I, I you know, I, I jumped off the funny songs train pretty early because my early songs were all pretty funny. Uh, and I noticed that that's what people wanted to hear. I was like, I don't want to be the guy with the funny songs. I don't think I have enough funny songs in me to be that guy. Yeah, I understand that. 
We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. There's another thing that you said. I think this was more Twitter stuff, but I think you talked about, you know, in, in response to people saying you should do ska, you should make a ska record or do a ska version of this or that. Yeah. That um, you 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 have an you're allergic to um, you know, a musician who's successful in this one area that says like, oh, I can just I'm just going to go make a ska record or a metal record or a kids record. So that's the thing I believe really strongly. Um, you know, it's like, and I'm I'm sure. As with everything I believe strongly, I'd be open to somebody saying, hey, here's a counterpoint to that, you know, um, and I have heard counterpoints too with regarding me in metal, right, um, because I love heavy metal, it's my favorite form of music. Um, and exactly for that reason, especially because metal bands could not get any respect for the longest time. Now they are culturally very current NPR reviews metal bands, whatever, you know, but in the 80s, it was literally Chuck Eddy, right, that was the only mainstream critic who had a kind word for heavy metal. Nobody else cared, right? Chuck Eddy was like alone saying like, this is decent music. These people are making good, good and interesting music. Everybody else has disrespected them all day, right? But did these bands change their style? No, they said, we like this music, you know, and we're gonna make this music for the people who like it. For me, who already has some presence and some clout and some guaranteed record sales, you know, it's like, if I make a record, there's a certain number of people who are just gonna buy it, period. They like the Mountain Goats, you know? Um, for me to abuse that trust on that side and make a record that, you know, in a genre they don't like or don't care about, maybe, you know, and and sort of like eat up some market share from people who have been toiling with it. I would only do that if I thought I could make a great metal record. You know, I'm not going to make a metal record just to make the Mountain Goats metal. Oh, it's hilarious. Right. I don't. That's kind of Jack Blackie. Love to Jack Black. Respect to him. Uh, you know, but uh, but I don't want to do that. If I was going to make a metal record, I would have to. This is what I said the other day. I have to go into the woodshed for about 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah. And then I'd practice my scales, like all the metal guys did when they were children, right? I would play scales and modes, scales and modes. I would learn some Van Halen solos. I would learn some Richie Blackmore solos. I would learn some, um, I'd, I'd learn some Scorpions tunes, right? And then I'd graduate from that and move on to what's more modern. And then I would have something to say in that field, right? But I think when somebody like me goes, you know, I'm cool enough to do whatever genre I like, I think that's disrespectful to the genre. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. You can use pieces. I can hire a big band horn section or a ska horn section to come in and play on my record, right? Well, now that's musical communication. That's beautiful, you know. But for me to presume that I get to do whatever I want, I, 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 that doesn't sit right with me. I know most Americans think I get to do whatever I want is like, you know, as close to a religious conviction as we collectively share. But I think it's bogus. You know, it's like I think. You should, if you love a form of music or literature, you shouldn't slum. You should say, let me pay my dues here. Let me at least be as good as the baseline in this genre. And I'm not that in metal, right? I'm not that in metal at all. I'm not as good at, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I can do stuff. I'm, I'm better as a soloist. People have, have observed in this last tour. When I play guitar solo, now, I'm better than I was a year ago, right? I'm, I'm getting somewhere. And I love that. But, but, uh, but for me to go, I just think it would be kind of jokey. And I don't want to do that. So. 
Where, where do you think like the line is between absorbing influences and sort of, you know, putting them into your melting pot. That's like your style and being a culture vulture. Um, I mean, I don't think there's a firm line and I think a lot of it depends on where you're coming from, you know, it's like, but a lot of it also depends on how people who love the genre that you're borrowing from hear your stuff and how they respond. Right. You can, you can learn from that, you know, um, if you, if you buy a phrase or whatever from something and somebody who knows what you're biting goes, Oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> so you brought in that from there, you know, then it's okay. And if it looks like you're sort of trying to, to wear a mask briefly to get attention, you know, then they'll notice that. Um, I mean, I don't think there's a hard line, you know, I think uh, you could, because like musically, it ought to be the case that you could deploy any sort of musical trope in whatever context you like for the betterment of what you're working on. Right. Um, but the reason that that's not unilaterally the case or universally the case is that there are other considerations. Like if, if when, when uh, white acts started borrowing rap tropes, well, the rap acts had been working for tiny labels and not making a lot of money, you know, like they were doing it for love of this genre they were building, you know, and then for, for white acts to come and go, oh, we're using your tools now. It's like, well, show some respect to the genre that you're engaging, you know, um, and that's important. You know, I, I think it's really important. Um, but, uh, but that's not true across all genres. I think when rock borrows country tropes, well, rock is, is, is the child of country anyway, so it's natural, you know. Um, so it depends. There's no hard, fast rule. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it, it does come down to how much do you actually like the music you're borrowing from? How, how much do you really know about it, right? I, for me, and I feel like a lot of postmodernists would disagree with me, you should have a good familiarity with the music you're borrowing from. Right. You should be able to talk about the, the basics of it, you know, and be able to, to, to have more than a passing familiarity. I don't think it's real hip to go to hear something you've never heard before. Go, oh, that sounds cool. Let me grab that. Yeah. Go learn where it's coming from. You know, you'll get more out of it and, and you'll be showing more respect to the, the person you're borrowing from. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's cultures that music come from, there's scenes, yeah. there's all kinds of things that are, and, and they overlap and they're, they're separate circles and they're, you know, they're important. Yeah, I mean, it's a very complex question. It, it varies so much from scene to scene. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that New Age music informs a lot of music now, right? New Age music, those guys had nothing but clown back in the day. They were all on private labels. You know, uh, they were not making money, but they believed in what they were doing and it had its own usage, like, you know, very limited. None of that stuff made money. But I think most of those, those guys were just happy to see that, that they were right, you know, that there's actually uses for those sounds, you know, and those moods, you know, uh, but it depends. It depends on where the stuff was coming from or what goals were in the first place. There, there's just so many questions involved in, in, in that larger question. So you wrote, you did this album in 2015 called beat the champ. Yes. Um, great, great record. One of my favorites. That's a, it's a wrestling theme record The by the way, I think, uh, if, uh, the hair match, the closing track on that record, probably one of your most, uh, emotionally potent songs thank you I had the first song written for the record maybe southwestern territory was before maybe i'm not sure uh, one of those two you go okay this is a wrestling record there's a cartoon on the cover but that song will bring you to tears thank you it's a uh, fantastic um so there's a weird overlap between pro wrestling and ska and i want to get your take on it um, i don't know anything about that we'll, we'll explain okay well so for one okay Actually, your drummer John Wooster, Worcester. Yeah, 
he um there because there was a hat there was a picture of a hat going around that said ska and pro wrestling are the only true forms of art right okay he shared it like a lot of people shared it it really, <laughs> really resonated with a lot of people um yeah, a lot of people like that's me that's me <laughs> <laughs> there's uh wrestlers like sammy sammy zane right like, i know sammy actually. he's embodied the ska who's that guy the guy that uh aj gray he's like on twitter like last few days being like ska's the worst music ever and uh, like he's kind of making you know <laughs> so i was just curious what what you think of the the ska wrestling like sammy or what you if you had any theories about that why these uh subcultures have like an overlap so i mean all subcultures overlap eventually right uh uh that's the thing like subcultures are all there's there's theory stuff about this like any subculture shares with any other subculture the fact that it is subcultural right it's like that that that's that's one thing that subcultures have in common is that they are not the monoculture right they're not the mainstream yeah uh, so so in that sense like you may or may not know anything about i don't know like gore movies right but i guarantee you there's a lot of stuff about the people who are into gore movies and and you that is similar mm -hmm. right the way that they keep track of information the way that like the big ticket items within the genre are considered a little corny and entry level you know? <laughs> so like like that stuff is common from subculture to subculture they have similar vocabularies or if not i don't want to say vocabularies but similar um uh grammars you know uh that 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 there's a way that subcultures operate right uh largely to preserve and there's a lot of gatekeeping in most subcultures and there's a lot of, of discussion about whether that's valuable or not right i think we're now in a place where a lot of subcultural spaces are saying no gatekeeping is bullshit right i think it's generally true even as i feel resistance about that like i don't in metal which is so precious to me you know like the fact that i won't make a metal record doesn't mean some other indie schmo won't you know and I think that guy shouldn't, that theoretical dude. It's like, I think he should show respect, you know? And uh, well, that's gatekeeping, right? Uh, that's, you know, because actually, if you want to make any kind of music, there's no reason for you not to, you know, uh, you should express yourself, you know? Uh, so, but that's one thing that subcultures share is a, a concern with protecting uh, the, their own boundaries for fear of being diluted, which means erased. You know, when, when a subculture gets diluted, it, it changes. And then the thing that was so special to, to, to a certain number of people is forever altered, right? And these are things that subcultures tend to think about a lot, right? Um, and so, yeah. so, so the overlap is not just between wrestling and ska, but in all subcultures, like when, when they encounter each other because one wrestler likes one band or whatever, that's when those similarities sort of come to light. Yeah, and, and kind of also like, you know, you, you did this album, The Goths, like a couple of years later. I feel like listen, I, I'm not like I like I like a lot of those bands. Adam is probably more into them than I am. Oh yeah, totally. But um, you know, I I, listen, I love that record a lot. And thank you. But yeah, I, I can relate. You know, it's so, very similar. You know, you know what you're talking about on goths is is stuff I can relate to, even though I'm not. I wasn't a goth when I was in high school. Yeah, I know. I thought about that when we're making that record. It's like you know, this is this stuff feels gothy to me, but it's actually just being in a smaller little circle. You know. Yeah. And I like how the the record is kind of paying tribute to um, the bands that were important to you, the the moments that are important to you that you know maybe the larger culture doesn't isn't aware of, will never be aware of, will never care about. Yes, the world will never know nor understand the stuff. Yes, blender. Love that line. The once in future God band. <laughs> <laughs> 
we we played that song this tour i was really happy to have it back I, i'm fond of that song yeah i saw i saw you guys um at fillmore uh when on the goths tour oh yeah great it was a great tour uh, thank you the, the the instrumentation of that record i feel like is a little a little step a little step out of like kind of like your stuff some there's a few songs on there and uh it was it was cool to see them live there was a few that i felt like were really really powerful in the live setting the thing that that because i called it goths instead of like what was the original title um uh i'm gonna look it up and see if i can find it um let's see here yeah so the original title of the album was death rock fantasy i.e uh for fender roads and small band right <laughs> the concept was that every song would be written on a fender roads and played on one right so that the Fender Rhodes is a keyboard uh, that uh, that's made by Fenders, I, th I think in the '60s, maybe early '70s, but it was pretty popular in jazz for a while, right? It's like it's 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 a it's a uh, uh, a hammer-driven keyboard, so it means you can the pressure on it matters how hard you strike the keys, right? But there's this built-in vibrato, right? It's sort of in between a vibraphone and a piano, you know, and uh, and an electric piano, and so. Uh, so yeah, so I wrote everything with that Fender Rhodes in, in, and then we bought a, a suitcase Fender Rhodes to take on tour, which weighs a ton <laughs> and, uh, and, and often requires repair while you're touring. But, uh, but yeah, so the instrumentation of the album was like, the instrumentation was what guided the album. That's how the album becomes what it is, is because that instrument is guiding it. Yeah. So um, in 2012, you did Transcendental Youth. Yes. And there's a fair amount of horns on there. And I was reading this interview you did with The Atlantic. And uh, it's funny because Atlantic is like, oh, well, we are we are esteemed journalists, you know, and the interviewers interviewer is saying like, oh, um, there's ska, there's a uh, horns on your record. I just makes me want to make ska jokes. And you're like, why ska? Why can't it, why not jazz? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I vaguely remember that. Like, the thing is, like, so I don't know if that was their music person, but the longer I make music, the more. And the, and the more I noticed that like everybody loves music, it's part of everybody's life, but people are so uncurious about it. You know, people, yeah. people will say, oh, horns equals sky. And you go, are you not paying any attention to anything? You know, it's like, it's so aggravating to me that like, and that sort of shorthand in the internet age is almost universal. It's like, oh, distortion pedal, it must be metal. Well, no, like it, there's no, in music, you know, nothing has a set meaning it's all context it's all how you deploy it right and 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 that includes the keytar people like to always go, oh a keytar you know this doesn't mean anything it doesn't matter what the instrument is no instrument has an inherent characteristic right a horn doesn't mean jazz a horn doesn't mean ska a horn doesn't mean classical right a horn is just a horn right um and this to most musicians is self-evident right even though yeah. Even though the whole reason I'm the mountain goats is because I didn't want people to think it was a folk act, right? <laughs> and, and a dude with an acoustic guitar playing under his own name is a folk act, right? But yeah. but I was like, well, that's not fair because I'm doing what can, sounds more like punk rock to me, you know. But uh, but I guarantee if I'm out there, John Darneal with an acoustic guitar, oh, is folk rocker John Darneal? Well, I don't want that, so I, I took a band name, you know. But but uh, but that's the thing is like for so many people. Uh, uh, there are these sorts of associations that form that they choose to make primary, right? I think that's a very poor choice. You know, I think like it really limits how music 
it's a way of of walling off music in a really just really unproductive but not only unproductive like self-denying phase like if for you horns means ska i don't hate ska but i feel sorry for you you know it's like then you can't hear horns that are the horns in bruckner's equalis right that are the horns on a van morrison record on on like um uh stoned me by van morrison right incredible horn breakdown in the chorus there if you hear that and you think ska i feel sorry for you right (laughs) like then you really incredibly you have decided to take what basically is like a twitter flex and make it your ethos you know well good luck to you (laughs) you know it's sort of like saying a violin means you know means i don't know like appalachian music i don't dislike appalachian music but a violin doesn't mean anything inherently. It can be anything. You know, it can it can be deployed in innumerable contexts. It's what you do with it, right? Yeah, and it seems too. The other weird thing is like, uh, I don't play horns. I play drums, but horns. I mean, I've always thought horns are pretty cool, like sounding, and but people like so many people feel like horns are funny, and something about horns in music, whether it's ska or anything, it's like makes them laugh or want to make a joke about it this isn't a formed enough idea for me to say that I stand by it, but I'll say as a guy who plays next to a sax player every night and hears it and notices the audience response, right? That I think there is something in the timber of horns that is so immediate and demands an emotional response, you know, so strongly that, that it puts you in such a vulnerable position that you're likely to laugh and want to make light of it rather than confront, you know, like it can be really something for music to suddenly ask an emotional response of you. You know what I mean? It's like uh, this Van Morrison song, Stoned Me, if you look into it. Um, like when those horns come in, they deepen the lyric he's just delivered so profoundly, you know, and, uh, and they, it's, just, it's two saxes and they go da 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 da, right? And, and you can do two things there, right? You can go with it, in which case you might cry. You know, you might you might feel very vulnerable, or you can laugh and say that's saxophone. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's saxophone, right? Like, like Kenny G, right? Ah, right. It's like, and I think that's the way that people put up a barrier because music really, like, you know, music is the thing that could take you to some places you weren't actually planning to go, right? It's like, uh, again, back to the specials is like the spe- you'll be having fun with the specials and go, oh, you know, I hadn't thought about this problem between black audience members and white audience members in London, you know, and the specials will put you there. They go, oh, you were having fun. We actually have something serious to share with you also, you know, and, uh, and that's, that's the miracle of music is like, you know, that, that you can do that. You can have up-tempo number that introduces some dark stuff. That's why when people say like, well, your songs are like so sad, but they're in major key. I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's the fun of it. You know, it's like, yeah, you're bopping your head and then you connect with something real and then you get two things for the price of one, right? So, but I think some people do not want two things for the price of one. They want one, right? They want to laugh at the funny saxophone, right? So, but uh, but I think some of that is because there's something inherent in the timber of the instrument that, that demands a response of some kind. And if you're not ready to just be naked and vulnerable, then you can laugh, you know? And that's fine too. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, 
grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.